Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, Episode 28D, an interview on Woodrow Wilson, World War I, and Shaping a New World Order with Thomas Nock. I'm excited to welcome Thomas Nock to the show today. Tom is both chair of the Department of History and a distinguished fellow at the Center of Presidential History at Southern Methodist University, a university where I once worked and got my MBA. He is also a board member of the Wilson Presidential Library, and he wrote the prize-winning book To End All Wars, Woodrow Wilson and the Quest for a New World Order. And that's where we're going to focus our time today. Tom, thank you so much for your time. Glad to be here, Kenny. Before we jump into World War I, what would you want someone to know about Woodrow Wilson to help contextualize this story? Well, it's interesting. Wilson is not very fondly remembered or well understood by most Americans, certainly not these days, but he occupies a secure position in that exclusive pantheon of, of, of great presidents. The domestic legislation he signed into law and the new directions he charted in American foreign policy really during the First World War really shaped uh, the future politics and foreign policy of the United States throughout the entire 20th century. Uh, and into our own time, I would say, among all presidents, only Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson have matched Wilson's record, for instance, in enacting a significant legislative program. Um, early on in his presidency, he established the Federal Reserve System, Federal Trade Commission. He signed into law the first federal law that um, gave the eight-hour day to American railroad workers uh, that Overnight, eight, about 400,000 workers got the uh, eight-hour day, the first federal law uh, to restrict child labor. Those are all really, really major achievements on his part. And then in the realm of international relations, I don't think any chief executive has ever communicated more effectively to the peoples of the world mm. the ideals of democracy mm -hmm. um, or through the covenant of the League of Nations. Uh, came up with a more original idea for reducing the risk of war um, than Wilson. Uh, those are really two sides of the presidency, domestic and foreign policy, and uh, pretty significant things there. And, and that's like a lot. I mean, he's obviously a very busy guy, and it's kind of funny that he was doing all that. Oh, yeah, and World War One happens on his watch. That's so, right. you know, he's about two years into his presidency. Very busy getting all that stuff done. When in the span of roughly a week, all of Europe's mightiest powers declare war on each other, kicking off World War I, what was Wilson's initial reaction to this outbreak of war? Well, you know, August 1914, there's no one living in the world who could have imagined a spectacle as violent and complicated as this. Um, the Casualty statistics are just absolutely stunning. If you look at what happened to France in just one year, 1915, over 300,000 French soldiers were killed. That's close to all the Americans killed in World War II, and that's just one year for, for France. Um, 1.4 million French dead at the end of World War I. For the United Kingdom, 900,000 killed, which is two and a half times the number people from the United Kingdom killed during World War II. So we're wow. talking about a, a, a conflict that really strained human 
comprehension for this insensate slaughter. Um, and Americans really thanked uh, the, uh, God for the Atlantic Ocean uh, at that time because 3,000 miles of open sea was quite a, a barrier uh, at the time. For Wilson, you know, he, that particular week in August, it's interesting you, you put it that way, he went through two of the most random experiences uh, of his life. Uh, his wife, Ellen, uh, whom he dearly loved, had three daughters with, they were married for 29 years, um, lay dying. Uh, she had tuberculosis of the kidneys, and um, she uh, perished on uh, August 6th as the rollout for the war uh, was occurring. Um, but I must say that uh, Wilson uh, declared neutrality within you know, about 24 hours of, of the full onslaught of, of the war. Um, and um, so most Americans, to get to the question of neutrality, which I think is what you're getting at uh, and, and why, uh, I remember when I was studying this in high school uh, the, about American neutrality, that we're always pro-British, that sort of thing. Uh, but that's worn a little bit thin in recent years. If you think about why we were in neutrality, again, ge- geography is very, very important, 3,000 miles away. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a tradition of non-involvement in European affairs. Not many people understood and wouldn't understand for a while the causes of this conflict, too. Uh, but probably most important, interesting enough, the nature of American society is what kept the United States out of the war for as long as it stayed out. A full third of the population of the United States in 1914 were immigrants and their children, recent immigrants from that, the so-called new immigration that began in the 1890s and came to a halt in 1914. And then in addition to them, think about what the other two largest so-called ethnic groups would have been. That would be German-Americans and Irish-Americans. They were not going to want to go to war very quickly uh, to bail out uh, Great Britain. So you see what I'm getting at. Uh, the diversity of the American population um, is pretty much what kept the U.S. out of the war from a political and social standpoint, if you follow me um, on that. Yeah, and I'm curious, was there any debate about that? Like when Wilson's sitting there now, obviously his wife's dying. There's a lot going on in his mind. But when he hears these reports of wars, is there like a cabinet debate of what do we do? Or is it just an automatic, oh, we're neutral? Like we all know we're going to be neutral here. Yes, but he does does certainly... um, uh, consult with his cabinet on this, but uh, if anybody said let's go to war, I mean, who would they go to war against at that at that yeah. point? Um, so um, neutrality was a natural uh, first uh, position uh, to take. What's miraculous when you consider that the world's greatest power were in the throes of the world's greatest conflict to that point, that the United States was able to stay out of it. It was the world's greatest economy. It was not the world's greatest military power. The potential was definitely there. Uh, But it was a huge factor for both warring coalitions. And uh, staying out of it was not an easy thing. You had the British blockade, for instance, almost from the beginning. Yeah. Um, which um, caused a lot of problems in Anglo-American relations because the British started stopping American ships on the high seas, to, uh, ostensibly to seize contraband. Uh, they would seize American mail. Um, relations over those issues uh, really got pretty tense. By the time you get to like 1916 or so, British-American relations are the worst they've been since the War of 1812. 
really. And then, of course, in what the beginning of February 1915 is when the Germans retaliated against the British blockade. You have to keep in mind that the British had the greatest navy in the world. They had the advantage on the high seas, and they could cut Germany, all the central powers, off from uh, trade with big neutrals like the U.S. The Germans had the advantage on the continent, incidentally, had the greatest army and facilities there. But in any case, they launched the submarine uh, in February of uh, 1915, which could potentially uh, endanger American lives and and property, which, of course, it did in the biggest way early on with the sinking of the Lusitania in May of 1915. Um, About 12 100 people drowned on the uh, Lusitania, including about 120 Americans. And um, Germany pretty much forfeited the the struggle for public opinion with the sinking of the Lusitania because it seemed like wanton murder of civilians on the high seas. Um, And uh, so that's a very, very difficult issue to deal with. There were lesser incidents in on going on into uh, 1915 and 16, but we certainly didn't go to war over the Lusitania. Nobody wanted right. to do that. Um, Americans wanted Wilson to keep his head and save us from this mess. Um, there was another big crisis in the spring of 1916 over a ship, the Sussex, um, that the Germans torpedoed, and uh, some Americans were killed, and in part because you have a coming uh, political campaign. Um, Wilson felt the necessity to uh, uh, to really draw the line on this and insist that Germany um, not end but curb submarine warfare and observe what was called the rules of visit and search. That is to say, you would halt a ship, allow the passengers and crew to get in lifeboats, and then you'd sink it. That sounds good um, from our perspective, but if you were a, a German submarine commander, yeah. uh, there was nothing keeping, say, a British merchantman um, yeah. uh, equipped with a cannon of some sort that was covered yeah. with a carbolion. And once a submarine surfaces, it's pretty vulnerable. Um, in any case, they kept to the so-called Sussex, Sussex Pledge for almost a year. And from that point of the spring of 1916 onward, um, U.S.-German relations were pretty steady. They were smoother than they were for the U.S. with the British. And they managed to uh, sink a fair number of ships by observing uh, visit and search. And Wilson, of course, not only because of that, but he was able to run on the slogan, he kept us out of war, which he did. Uh, It's interesting. The main reason Germany went along with this, though, was because they only had about 20 or 25 submarines. Ah, which was a fair number, uh, but it wasn't really enough to tip the balance in the war to their favor, but it was quite enough potentially to provoke the world's most powerful neutral um, to declare war on them. And that, you know, would spell disaster potentially for Germany. So uh, they held off for a while. And in any case, it had a big impact on American domestic politics. So we, we start off Americans pretty much universally want to stay out of it. I mean, even guys like Theodore Roosevelt are like, well, maybe like maybe even we should side with Germany, some people are saying. But you have the submarine warfare ramping up pressure to do something about Germany. Yes. You have British blockade also complicating relationships. What are the big factors that really pushed Wilson toward? Like, what were the factors that were still holding him up? 
And what were the ones that pushed him over the top? Well, the things that were holding him up, if you're talking about getting into the war, uh, was the fact that Germany was curbing its submarines and he was trying to mediate an end to the war. Um, he ran for re-election, not just on the slogan, he kept us out of war, uh, but also because he, the, the League of Nations entered American politics in 1916. It was a factor in the campaign for re-election. Wilson was supposed to lose that election. His election in 1912 was a fluke yeah. because yeah. the were split yeah. right open between Taft and Roosevelt. By now, they had patched things up. But because Wilson had become such a thoroughgoing progressive, Federal Reserve, uh, Federal Trade Commission, the Adamson Act, the child labor law, the appointment of Louis Brandeis, he was able to pull over to the normal Democratic vote probably at least a third of the people who voted for Theodore Roosevelt in 1912 mm -hmm. on the progressive ticket. Yeah. And it's estimated that probably, I don't know, 35 or 40 percent of the people who voted for Eugene Debs in 1912 wow. came over to Wilson. Yeah. And so that swelled uh, the normal Democratic vote. So he won on a kind of a platform of progressivism and peace. He knew quite well that at any moment, a uh, submarine commander could plunge the U.S. Uh, into war the next day if it violated the Sussex Pledge. And so he became uh, almost desperate to try to end the war before something like that happened. And in January of 1917, he went before the Senate and he made a very, very important speech one of the two or three most important he ever did. It's called the Peace Without Victory speech. And he appealed to the belligerents to cease the war before um, uh, a, a, an injury be done civilization that could never be atoned for or, or repaired. Uh, and to what, what he, he, he launched a kind of critique of European uh, imperialism, um, uh, uh, militarism, uh, balance of power politics, those things, and held out the idea of what you could call a new world order based on new rules of international life uh, that would have a capstone in the League of Nations, where we're in nations, rather than going to war, uh, would agree to submit disputes between them to an international court of arbitration, that they would work together to build down their uh, armaments, um, so you have a serious reduction in arms and begin to um, roll back uh, uh, colonialism uh, in favor of self-determinations, uh, self-determination, those kinds of things. And he was hailed by liberals on the left all over the world. Uh, but at just that time, in January of 1917, there's a big struggle going on in the German high command over reverting now, since they had built up their fleet of submarines by this point over the previous months, to about 100, reasoning that if they went for all-out unrestricted submarine warfare against all flags, that they could bring the belligerents to their knees before the United States, which was sure to declare war on that account, mm -hmm. get its act together to bring sufficient force to Europe to tip the balance against Germany. It was a huge gamble. It's yeah. one of the biggest gambles in history. And um, so on February 1st, they, they resumed, uh, uh, or not resumed, they reverted to full-scale unrestricted submarine warfare. And even that didn't cause Wilson to go to Congress to ask for a declaration of war. We didn't, it, that's not until early April. So you got February and March to see what's going to happen. And they do begin to sink 
American ships without warning. And then you have something called the Zimmerman note that you probably know something about. Yeah. Uh, wherein the Germans rather stupidly um, uh, uh, tried to inveigle Mexico to attack the United States in the event of war between the U.S. and Germany uh, with the reward of trying to get Texas back for Germany and California, that sort of thing. And um, that uh, the British had interdicted uh, this correspondence between the Germans and the Mexicans. Um, I forget, sometime in February, and they held on to it at a, a, for a particular uh, a period of time to release it at a, pretitious, um, at a, a particularly good uh, moment um, in U.S.-German relations. And <laughs> at its desired propagandistic effect, I mean, it was yeah. a ridiculous, preposterous proposition, but it's one of the things that caused Wilson to lose faith in the good offices of the Germans to sort of mm. you know, talk with Germany that way. Yeah. Neither side was responding to to uh, Wilson's interposition uh, to, uh, you know, come to the peace table or anything like that. Uh, so I think basically the combination of the resumption of, again, the reversion to unrestricted submarine warfare um, the idea in Wilson's mind that the war was probably coming to an end and American belligerency would hasten its end. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. If the U.S. got into the war, which it seemed probably at this point in his mind, it was going to happen sooner or later, better to have it happen sooner, that perhaps American participation um, could turn it toward a better outcome than might otherwise obtain. Um, and when he went before Congress to ask for uh, a declaration of war he laid out, you know, basically kind of peace without victory platform Yeah. Uh, for democracy, for um, the rights and liberties of small nations and for what he called a universal dominion of right by such a concert of free peoples as shall make uh, all nations free and those kinds of lines of rhetoric uh, that uh, bring us to that in part to that line, the world must be made safe for democracy. Yeah. It was a brilliant speech. Some observers compared it to um, Henry V, the uh, St. Crispian days, uh, St. Crispian's day speech, the Henry V before. You, you talk about it, you know, the submarines, the Zimmerman telegraph. I mean, these are all reasons that are getting people in it. But then Wilson goes into that speech and, and he, that, he has that rhetoric. He has that line. The world must be safe for democracy. And this is what we read in all our textbooks. You know, every American student coming up here is that line. Did the line land as impactfully back then as it does today? Did Americans feel like we're entering a crusade for democracy? That is not what Wilson said. Oh, this is this is, this is well, I think he's a rhetorician. Yeah. You've got Thomas Jefferson, you've got Abraham Lincoln, you have Woodrow Wilson and one or two other presidents who are brilliant rhetoricians wordsmiths. He uses the passive voice. He says, the world must be made safe for democracy. Think about that. In other words, it has to be made safe enough for our democracy. And that's going to require the military defeat of Germany. Right. Because it poses a threat to that. He did not mean it to be a crusade for democracy. And that's a Interpretation. Most people don't really realize that, and most scholars debate this this issue. Uh, How did I, the American people take it? That, in one way or another, it, it is a war for democracy, but not yeah. necessarily, you know, imposing our our ways on other peoples. Because it, it. 
course, with the idea of self-determination too. Right, That's right, a right. Big issue in all of this as well. Um, and um, so that's an interesting thing about his most most famous phrase of his presidency. It's in the passive voice. Yeah. But it's uh, he's talking about we're, we shall fight for the things that are nearest our hearts. Uh, and so that we can at least pursue our own experiment in, in peace and safety. And maybe others might want to emulate us. Awesome. awesome. And, and he, he, of course, mentions the other thing. He, he mentions submarines, mentions submarines, and, and then he hits the rhetoric, you know, to really get your heart involved, you know. Of course. Yeah. Of course. So, so one thing that also strikes me at Wilson is, you know, famously at one point he tells an associate roughly that it would be a shame if he became a war president because his life experience had really prepared him for domestic affairs. But I also kind of find that funny because despite that, he seems to have like a really clear idea of what he wanted the new world order to look like when he entered the war. He, he had the 14 points. Sounds like he might talk about sooner. So was but, this something Wilson had been carrying around or when did when he develop it? But Well, because he had two and a half years to think about it. He was able to keep the U.S. out of the war for 30 months. That's a long time. And believe me, the issue coursed through American politics. Um, and you have uh, an internationalist movement uh, pro uh, crop up in American politics um, it's, uh, with, with two wings, basically, the progressive wing and a more conservative wing. You know, Wilson's chief critics like uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, for instance, uh, none of them were really isolationists. They were internationalists also, but mm -hmm. more conservative sort. But one thing about what he actually said, he said it to a friend uh, before he was inaugurated. Uh, he said it would, he used another great phrase, it would be the irony of fate. That's what he said. It would be the irony yes. of fate yeah. if my administration had to deal chiefly with foreign policy. Right. <laughs> Not if he would be a war president, but nonetheless foreign policy. And the first big, you know, military struggle of sorts that he dealt with was the Mexican Revolution. On yeah. The war, uh, which was going haywire when a military dictatorship uh, came to power after two years of revolutionary ferment. Um, but in any case, so that that's the full context for that. But he developed full platform. form. That's why I wanted to bring in the peace without victory formula. Yeah. Which yeah. Was the yeah. culmination of his thinking during the war about the causes of the war and what could be done not to eliminate war. It's impossible to do that, I suppose, but to lessen the likelihood of it, and to what he emphasized more than anything else was to um, uh, head war off before it started. Not co collective security was part of it, but to uh, set in motion processes for the peaceful settlement of international disputes, along with building down armaments, because one of the causes of the war probably was this huge arms race among the European great powers in the context of imperial rivalries and tremendous surges of nationalism in, in at least a couple of the belligerent countries, very unstable political uh, circumstances in Germany and Russia. And it's said that the old regimes there seized upon that crisis in the Balkans. Yeah and rushed to war in order to, to prop up their, their own regimes, basically, and, yeah. and people yeah. around the flag. Socialists, the biggest socialist party in the world, world was in Germany, and it was mm -hmm. a yep. social democracy in Germany, and they voted war credits right away because, you know, they feared the Russians, that kind of thing. So by the time you do get to the, the time of the 14 points, he's, he's, he does have a full uh, raft of ideas, and with a following too, uh, a lot of uh, 
when he got endorsements from liberal magazines like the New Republic, they all pointed to his thoroughgoing progressivism. They also pointed out that he's not only keeping us out of war, he has a plan to at least try to avoid wars like this in the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, And lots of people uh, joined. uh, They might have been progressive Republicans and are now happy to join Wilson to keep him in office for those reasons. And he was sincere in this and they took him seriously, too. Um, I'm curious, would you mind elaborating on what his vision was for the world order? Because I think it's very easy to get kind of remember what we ended up getting and to lose what the vision was. Like, how would you succinctly sum up what he, he wanted? Well, basically, with the 14 points themselves, um, uh, more than half of them are pertain to territorial arrangements. I that, yeah. <laughs> About half a dozen of them uh, pertain yeah. to uh, things other than that. You, you know, one thing that we should really talk about, though, for context for the 14 points, and it has yeah. a lot to do with the League of Nations, is the fact of the Russian Revolution. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. No, no Russian revolution, probably no 14 points address. Ah. Because here's the thing. You had yeah. right as we're entering the war in yeah. April 1917, the first Russian revolution led by Alexander Kerensky and social Democrats um, come to power. They overthrow the czarist regime. And their big mistake is that they recommit to the war. Yeah, bad idea. Bad no, idea. No country suffered more than Russia during World War One or World War Two, as you probably yep. know, yeah. just battered. And uh, the Bolsheviks came to power in November of 1917, just a few months after uh, the provisional government under Kerensky got set up, which the U.S. was the first uh, great power to recognize. That also, incidentally, made it um, easier for Wilson to couch our entrance into the war under the word of democracy because uh, the Russians were no longer this horrible backward um, uh, autocracy. There was an ostensible democratic uh, socialist government in power um, by March, April, 1917. Here comes the Bolsheviks though, promising peace and bread. Yeah. Um, and they, they succeeded in overthrowing the previous regime and they began to pull Russia out of the war. And at the same time, they published allied treaties, treaties among the allied powers, for parceling out the territorial swag at the end of the war to tell the lie. Territorial swag. I love it. Yeah, to to, to tell the lie on the so-called virtues of the war. So there's here's an ideological problem here for Wilson because he just, you know, finally got into it after two and a half years, and he is invoking democracy and self-determination. And our allies, you know, might have some you know, issues with those very issues himself. The other thing is, it creates a military crisis. When Russia pulls out of the war, that allows Germany to move some 40 divisions to the Western Front. A division, depending on what country's army you're talking about, is anywhere between 10,000 to 12,000 troops times 40 back to the Western Front. And they almost won the war because of that. So it's a military and ideological crisis that falls to Wilson to reassure liberals and socialists in all the allied countries that the war is worth fighting to the very end. 
And so the 14 points is a kind of response to the Bolsheviks who have tried to tell a, a, what the lie is about the Allied cause. And it talks about open, open covenants openly arrived at and um, uh, reduction of armaments uh, to the point lowest point consistent with domestic safety, uh, the impartial uh, adjustment of all colonial claims that appeals to everybody to national self-determination and the League of Nations, the 14th point. That's the most important one uh, for him. And um, what else? Uh, he has nice things to say about the Russian people. Uh, that They should have a, a clear, um, the other nations should not interfere with them working out their own destiny. Uh, he calls for the return of Alsace-Lorraine to the French, um, uh, a free and independent Poland, those kinds of things are all part of uh, the 14 points. Um, and um, it's, it, it embodied new ideas and new ways of thinking uh, about what an international community in the 20th century might achieve in the wake of this unparalleled catastrophe born of the 19th century, really, in, in, in many respects. So in early 1918, Wilson puts out his 14 points. And people have already heard for a while, too, like what this guy's about. They know what he's about. Almost a year later, November 11th, 1918, the armistice that ended World War I takes hold. And then the peace negotiations began. What was Wilson's goal and strategy in those negotiations? Was he still after the 14 points or had he evolved on anything? Well, the Germans, when... Finally, uh, their lines are beginning to fall back in September and October uh, toward the Belgian frontier. They know the jig is up. And yeah. they, they pursue not the British or the French, but they, they pursue Wilson. Ah. They ask him to take steps to bring about an armistice on the basis of his 14 points address. It's a good move on their part. And some historians have maintained that probably the 14 points address maybe shortened the war some mm. uh, because it, millions of copies of it uh, were dropped uh, over uh, German lines and things like that. And also in Russia, to the Russians, loved the 14 points. Uh, it was great propaganda, really. Uh, but in any case, so, so the, the terms of the armistice uh, were settled militarily, but also there's a quasi-acceptance on the part of the allies of the 14 points, but not fully because both the French and the British have certain exceptions to it. And, um, you know, um, Victorio Orlando uh, made that, or not Orlando, but uh, Clemenceau made that famous remark. He said, God gave us uh, the Ten Commandments and we broke them. Wilson gives us the 14 points, we shall see. <laughs> and uh, they were they were antagonists, but in any case, you have pretty acrimonious uh, negotiations for about six months. Um, what Wilson wanted to do, wanted to try to do, anyhow, the getting the league accepted by the Allies was his number one uh, goal, and he got that pretty early on. Um, but what he wanted to do was to moderate some of the more extreme territorial aims of the Allies uh, and other punitive demands against Germany. And he often found himself in a minority of one mm -hmm. um, and, and was often you know, compelled to compromise his principles. And he was also not very well then. Um, and 
basically permitted, there's not much he could do in, in certain circumstances, uh, but permit the Allies to impose on Germany a huge reparations burden, uh, as well as a war guilt clause saddling Germany with the moral responsibility for having started the war. Uh, his one hope, though, was even with its flaws, uh, the Treaty of Versailles contained the Covenant of the League of Nations, and mm-hmm. that, that that would be there, be able to uh, rectify the injustices contained in the Treaty of Versailles uh, itself. Um, and Wilson thought that it would create kind of a, at least a temporary shelter from the storm for a few years to give um, the nations the opportunity to uh, to experiment, to see if, if, if these ideas of arbitrating disputes, reducing arms and so on, uh, stood a chance of acceptance in international relations. Um, One thing that, that is rattling in my mind, so I feel like I got to say it out loud, is... Okay. Someday I want to contrast the uh, the 14 points of World War One versus the unconditional surrender of World War Two, and the impact those had on both elongating or shortening their wars and the world orders that came after them. Um, you want me to? Come? Yeah, if you have a thought on that, well, I'd love your thought. Germany uh, was was not invaded at the end of World uh, World War One. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know they fell back and they fell into revolution pretty quickly, also. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the, the idea was to, um, to, to to end the war as soon as you could, and yeah. um, the the Allies wanted to do that. Here's an interesting statistic for you: for every combat um, death for the Americans, which was about fifty two thousand, it wasn't that many. More died of the flu, about one hundred ten thousand yeah. altogether. About half of that were were uh, battle deaths, and half of that number was in September of nineteen eighteen. But for every one of our guys, a total of 47 Brits and French soldiers died. And so they didn't want to drag this out anymore than they they had to. Um, The issue with unconditional surrender, um, uh, that is really tied intimately with the decisions uh, to drop the bombs um, on Mm. Japan, the atomic bombs. So Mm. probably... Go cool. to go into that. Yeah, but, no, no. I appreciate your thoughts on that. Okay, so but, so back to verse. Yeah, but 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 the completeness of the victory. Otherwise, Germany uh, turned over all kinds of artillery, they yeah. uh, and ships and so on. Uh, when when Wilson went before Congress to read out the terms of the armistice, people gasped audibly over the completeness of, of the victory. Really, um, it uh, it was um, a peace with victory, hoping for. The peace without victory ideas uh, to come uh, through in in the end. Um, the pity for Wilson, though, was that um, the midterm elections of 1918 shaped the politics and diplomacy thereafter. Because after six years of democratic majorities, um, reversal of fortunes, there he lost both houses, the Senate by just two. And seeing how close some of those Senate races were, if you had just 10,000 votes to spread out in five different Senate races, the Democrats would have kept the majority in the Senate of three. Whoa, that is tight. That is very tight. And I stress it because the Republicans now had a majority. They controlled committees 
And Henry Cabot Lodge is going to chair with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And they can say that, you know, he's in a parliamentary system. He would be repudiated, you know, and those kinds right, of things. Right, right, yeah. It, it undermined his authority to some extent. And his compatriots um, at the Paris Peace Conference knew this, and they used it in certain situations. So so I want to jump back to Versailles and the, the Paris okay, Peace sure. Conference. In, in what ways did the Treaty of Versailles live up to or fall short of Wilson's ideals? Well, it depends on who you talk to about it. Um, it's a mixed bag. It really is. Um, some historians would argue that it, it, it puts uh, too much responsibility on the treaty itself for what happened later when uh, the British and the French might have done something to enforce it during the crisis over the Rhineland, for instance. Sure, yeah. Um, in the 1930s, that kind of thing. Um, it certainly probably fell between two stools. It, 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 it was harsh enough on Germany to cause um, a lot of resentment um, in German political society, um, and uh, but not strong enough to keep it down forever. Uh, that was never going to happen. And the other thing, you had to have a, um, a, pro, you know, a, a resurgent, economically resurgent Germany in order to have uh, an economically stable Western Europe as well. Um, I, the ideas that came out of the 14 points um, setting aside the treaty momentarily were all progressive ideas, the ones that weren't territorial um, uh, goals, um, the, like anti-imperialism. Wilson certainly had some blind spots there, but he let the genie out of the bottle, and there was no putting it back after uh, 1919. And the combination of Wilson's rhetoric and Franklin Roosevelt's later on uh, was irresistible for all the countries that were part of the French Empire and the British Empire and the Dutch Empire, they didn't get self-determination at the end of World War One, but they're definitely going to get in World War Two. Yeah. Um, if you if you see, and and those are things that were set in motion um, in a positive way, anyhow. Um, yeah. Not necessarily by the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles is, uh, you know, uh, not a good peace in the end. And the problem with it, though, is that without American ratification, it would never work. Right. The, the nation's portion of it. Uh, yeah. how, how can it work properly without the most important uh, uh, member um, as a, uh, a, a potential member, as, as, as a charter member of the, of the league? And let's talk more about that, about the United States not getting on board. This was one of the things that Wilson was able to get from the peace negotiations, but he went home with it and he couldn't get the Republicans to sign off. They wanted these reservations that he just refused to allow. Why wouldn't he compromise? Why wouldn't he accept the reservations to get the treaty ratified? Well, an awful lot of the reservations um, went to the heart of the league. They, they called into question uh, the concept of collective security, um, whether or not the United States would participate in some kind of uh, coercive uh, economic or military move to compel uh, a warring nation to uh, uh, stand down. Um, they would affect uh, the arbitration provisions of the League because those are basically uh, compulsory. And, uh, you know, 
as I said before, Wilson's critics, very few of them were out now isolation and say we're conservative internationalists. They thought the U.S. should join some kind of international organization, but it should be fully master of its own house. Um, that it should uh, build up its armed forces and jealously uh, reserve um, uh, the right to um, intervene uh, militarily, uh, unilaterally, without consulting the League. And Wilson's thought was that the United States had to take the, uh, accept the risk of losing in court yeah. in order to make the League work properly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and if you went in under terms of your own choosing, you were going to um, undermine it from the very start. And that the United States simply had to recognize for this to work, that the United States had to accept certain responsibilities and constraints. All the great powers had to do that. Um, so he's talking about multilateral things, whereas um, an awful lot of the conservative internationalists, certainly most of the Republican internationalists, uh, uh, thought that th this, this was an assault on American sovereignty. And in many respects, that th those were the shoals upon which the League of Nations foundered as far as American ratification uh, went. Um, that uh, you couldn't have arms reductions if you weren't agreeing to go along with what the League uh, came to collectively. Um, the same with the sanctions and, and, and those things. And actually, Wilson put a much heavier stress um, on today what we'd call conflict resolution, that is on this crucial machinery for avoiding war before it started and for facilitating disarmament and settling international disputes peacefully through the process of arbitration. And his critics just thought he was willing to consign too many national interests to the will of an international authority. Um, the Democratic leader Gilbert Hitchcock um, in the Senate uh, uttered this phrase, internationalism has come and we must decide what form, what form the internationalism is to take. And no one ever summed it up better than that, really. That's what this was about, about competing forms of internationalism. So one thing I'd like to drill a little deeper on, and please correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding of the reservations is that they wouldn't have actually affected the League of Nations, that they were kind of just writing that said, we don't like this, but whatever, we're signing the treaty. Is that correct? Or do I have that wrong? And, and well, if it is correct, why wouldn't he just let that happen? The League was in the treaty. You couldn't dissect sure. it. You could not remove right. it from the treaty. Yeah. And so the reservations were to say, okay, we'll go along with it, except for this and except for that. And so, so did they actually have the holding to say, like, we're not going to do that? Or are they just paper like, well, we don't want to do, do that? What do you do about well? a treaty? Do you renegotiate it? Um, or, or what? Yeah, because, I, I'm just confused on the reservations, like the function of them. Like I thought I'd read that a reservation is where you say, I don't like that, but I'm still going to do it. I just think it's dumb. Was I wrong on that? Well, the way Lodge put it was this, that the reservations would, quote, release us from obligations that might not be kept while preserving rights which ought not to be infringed. And Wilson simply held that the reservations would change the entire meaning of the treaty and the League, and the League would be undermined from the start if it went in only, uh, if the United States went in only on conditions of its own choosing. And um, so that was pretty much it. And ratification thus foundered. There were three votes on ratification, one with 
the, so there were 14 reservations, incidentally, curiously <laughs> enough. You can count them. Uh, but yeah. it, you, it, it, it were never able to muster the necessary two-thirds majority yeah. uh, with or without the reservations. Um, and uh, on the final one, that was I guess it was in March of 1920, you know, it, fa it failed just seven votes short of, uh, of ratification uh, with, with the reservations. Um, Thank you for and, clearing that up for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know how clear I made it, but um, <laughs> it, it, you also have the factor of uh, Wilson's stroke in there yeah. as well. Some people argue that um, that uh, there would have been a, a better outcome if he hadn't had the stroke. Uh, that's there's no guarantee of that. That doesn't the, the, the stroke thesis. It's important certainly, but it does not tell you much about the politics of the league, which had their origins going back in 1915, 1916, really. Uh, yeah. It didn't just crop up in 1918 and 1919. And the midterm elections of 1918 completely changed the political environment in which the league would have had to have operated. Um, Wilson lost a lot of his following, his progressive following that kept him in office for a second term because of his acquiescence in the suppression of civil liberties during the war. Um, and um, so he didn't have the kind of, he, he was unable to keep that coalition of 1916 together that might have otherwise sustained him. Um, and you needed the optimal political conditions in yeah. American politics to sustain this as well. The the covenant was partly uh, like a constitution. Uh, you have to; it, it was subject to interpretation. You're right to to probe it that way, um, but if you're going to go in only on terms of your own choosing and these conservative terms, it's going to be something else. It will be a League of Nations much different than the progressive one that uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, thought he had in mind here. So today. We have a United Nations, which was inspired by the League of Nations, and the United States is part of it now. And yet we still also have war and suffering. So what is the legacy of Wilson's pursuit of a new world order? Is, is what he wanted to create, is what he aspired for, is that possible? Well, I don't know. The United States, you know, Wilson was a little bit more popular in World War II than he was in World War One, because during World War Two, <clears throat> um, the <clears throat> wisdom developed that um, if the United States had joined the League and paid more attention to Wilson, perhaps World War Two might have been averted. Yeah. Uh, from 1943 onward, 44 during the war, you couldn't pick up a magazine. It didn't have a photograph of Wilson or something about, you know, uh, the great betrayal, uh, the fact that the U.S. didn't join the league. And now it had a second chance, a second yeah. chance ideology. Uh, even Hollywood got in involved in it. Uh, Daryl Zanuck at 20th Century Fox uh, produced a two and a, hour, a two and a half hour Technicolor epic about Woodrow Wilson. Um, wow. And the last half hour, it came out in 1944, and it was made partly as pro-UN uh, propaganda, actually, uh, based on this idea of, of the second chance. Um, but Franklin Roosevelt made sure that the basic Republican reservations, going back to 1919, were more or less in the United Nations charter. Yeah, yeah. And the United States... You know, many times, many times throughout the Cold War, um, violated 
uh, various uh, articles of the UN by going in unilaterally overthrowing uh, fledgling democracies in Guatemala or, or Iran or Vietnam itself. That was not a United Nations operation. J. William Fulbright once made the remark that that Wilson came up, internationalism was the one great new idea of the 20th century in the field of international relations. The idea of international organization with permanent processes for the peaceful settlement of international disputes. And that's, that challenge is, is still with us. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, the United States pursued a kind of anti-Wilsonian internationalist foreign policy. I'll tell you, in a way, conservative internationalism is what won out. A after World War I. After World War II. After World War II. Okay. Yes, yes. Um, and, and, and more recently, of course, we've had you know, Donald Trump, who is uh, probably the least internationalist uh, of all presidents, although George W. Bush um, you know, refused to uh, ratify the Paris Climate Accords and the landmine treaties and those kinds of things. I think what is Wilsonian, for instance, if if, if um, Wilson were active today, uh, if he were president in the wake of Trump, let's say, I think that he would do everything in his power to um, uh, get the joint comprehensive plan on Iran's nuclear weapons back up and running. He would see to the implementation of the Paris Climate Accords, probably the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He would certainly advocate uh, U.S. financial contributions, more of them to the U.N., particularly for its peacekeeping um, activities. And above all, I'm certain he would see nuclear proliferation and global warming as the two greatest concerns that face the United States. And it's beyond the power and wisdom of just one country to deal with existential problems like this. And so I think in a lot of ways, Wilson's ideas are more important today than they ever were for those reasons. Um, and, 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 and NATO, for instance, yeah. think about that as a small League of Nations kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and and sure. the way Trump was, you know, began denigrating NATO, wanted to pull out of it and uh, those kinds of things. Um, he's, <laughs> we probably shouldn't get off on, on that. <laughs> but, uh, case, I, I think that's really seriously part of uh, um, a very important legacy of yeah. Wilsonian ideas that most Americans really aren't aware of. Um, and how important international cooperation is today, uh, more so than ever, because we are now at the point uh, where, where the fate of the earth and humankind hang in the balance in so many respects. I hope we figure this whole thing out at some point. <laughs> um, well, last question I'd love to ask you. Oh, I'm sorry, were you able to speak? Well, at one time, at one, I forget, it was uh, a senator from Arizona, I think, was in the Oval Office talking to Wilson during the armistice negotiations uh, and urging him to, to, to hang tough on him or something like that. And he said to him, can't people see that I'm, that I'm, 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 I'm struggling for, uh, I'm thinking of a hundred years hence. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to think about that. He was, you no, know, the way he phrased it was, I'm playing for a hundred years hence. Yeah. Yeah. And those hundred years, really, they, they've run out now. And yeah. the time we might have left uh, might be shorter than, than we think to, to, to pull these things together to get on a different track yeah. than we've been on.
in this decade. And I think this last question is a timely one, given what we're just talking about, is is to make these things happen, you you need leadership to make this stuff happen. So what lessons in leadership can we learn from Wilson's experience chasing his dream? Well, it depends on what you mean by leadership. And it's not just on the foreign policy side. It's um, it's on the domestic side of things. He and FDR and Lyndon Johnson are the most effective domestic leaders we've ever had in terms of getting legislation through. Um, maybe Johnson, in a way, the most, um, because he realized that, you know, when you're elected, you've got two years to get done what you're going to get done. Yeah. And uh, that's sort and then of those midterms are coming, you know, <laughs> that, that sort of thing. Yeah. The other thing is presidents have very little control of what what hand they're dealt. I think yeah. President Biden has one of the toughest hands dealt to him of any president um, since Jimmy Carter or maybe Herbert Hoover. Um, and, and I would have said that before, you know, the Russians invaded the Ukraine. Uh, this has just made it uh, all, all, all the more difficult. So you definitely have to be some sort of student of history, I would think, and, and realize that we're on. This is one world, as, as Wendell Wilkie, another you know progressive internationalist of a Republican sort, in the early 1940s, said, "We live in one world, and we all have to get along and do our best to to help everybody survive and prosper." We could use, in certain respects parts of another Wilson and parts of another uh, Lyndon Johnson and, and FDR and Barack Obama. I think in, in foreign affairs, I think Joe Biden is doing a very good job in, in terms of dealing with the, the war. And it's rather Wilsonian, the way yeah. he's pulling together yeah, uh, uh, a Wilsonian internationalist coalition to, um, to check the Russians ultimately. Yeah, I think it's interesting the way you you, you say you you want parts of Wilson because there's certainly some parts. Not we'll, we'll talk to other historians about the parts you don't want, but you just want like a scalpel to just take the good stuff, and and the good stuff's really good. Lyndon Johnson's half a great president. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we need. We need uh, that the halves of the best halves of everybody. Wilson set the destination. We're not there. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much. If you'd like to hear more from Tom, please check out To End All Wars, Woodrow Wilson and the Quest for a New World Order, uh, or his other works, such as The Rise of a Prairie Statesman, The Life and Times of George McGovern. He's also contributed to the Woodrow Wilson episode of PBS's American Experience. I love that program. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, Tom. Thank you, Kenny. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. You can follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. You guys and gals listening are the reason I get excited to work on this show. I appreciate you lending me your ears and your time. Uh, If you have any friends or family who you think would enjoy it, just drop in that recommendation next time you're talking to them. You know, a little, hi, how's it going? Nice weather today. You should totally listen to this podcast. Real smooth and natural. In our next episode, I'll talk to Paul Brandis, a longtime member of the White House Press Corps and author of several books on the presidency about Woodrow Wilson's wives and the important roles they played during his presidency. 
That's next time on Abridged Presential Histories. <laughs>